0: So this morning's text, it serves as a middle section. I guess you could call it the meat between two texts in which we find Jesus interacting with his earthly family. We didn't get to really fully cover the, the concluding portion of our, of our text in Mark 3 last week. But verses 20 and 21 went like this. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. You remember that Jesus had had gone to Nazareth. Before he officially made Capernaum there in Galilee his home, Jesus had gone to Nazareth, and he had taught there in the synagogues, and he had explained to them that because they were never going to be able to see him as anything more then a carpenter's son, he was not going to perform miracles there before them. They weren't going to see some of the things that the rest of the world would see. And you remember, they took him out to a cliff, and they planned on throwing him off of the cliff and to his death. And he just passed, passed right through, and he headed on to Capernaum. Well, so you see, by, by this point, the word of what Jesus had done had surely reached his hometown. And you can just imagine the conversations taking place around the table where he once ate supper with his siblings. You know, we always knew Jesus was weird. He was perfect. What kid's perfect? And he seemed to love the law, and he seemed to care about the things of God more than any normal boy should, but this is a bit much. But Mary knew. The angel Gabriel had come and told Mary who her son would be. She had seen the wise men and the shepherds. She had witnessed all this, but they hadn't. They just knew Jesus is their big brother. They didn't understand the promises. And so while she treasured these things in her heart, and maybe she tried to help them to understand, they just didn't get it. They hadn't been there 30 years earlier. And so as word reached them, they said, and it's this imperfect tense, like they kept saying. You can imagine them sitting around meal after meal going, did you hear what he did today? They said he's out of his mind. Jesus is crazy. He's a lunatic. And so then perhaps to rescue their brother, but probably more likely out of fear for their own family name, they decided that they were going to go get him. They were going to go seize him, take him against his will. They were going to put him into the loony bin. They were going to force him to come back and stop the stuff that he was doing. And church, I think this is a healthy reminder to us that if the family of Jesus Christ finds him to be crazy, how much more so are families when we follow after him? Even, even people within the church, even people that we call our faith family at times to go all in for Jesus Christ the way that the gospel demands, they're going to find us lunatics, radicals, fanatical. It's going to make them extremely uncomfortable at times to see us going all in for Christ the way that, the way that we should. And so be- between there and then verse 31 in Mark 3, when this rescue party arrives, we-, we come to this very difficult text this morning. And so I invite you there in your homes, those of you that are here, please stand to your feet. As we read together from Mark's gospel, we're going to read verses 22 through 29 in chapter 3. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom is divided itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin for they were saying he has an unclean spirit blessed be the reading of god's holy word you may be seated father god would you make this book live to me in it would you show me yourself would you show me myself would you show me my savior would you make this book live to me in your son's precious name we pray amen So Jesus' family was not the only group that had caught wind of what he was doing. Word had traveled south into Jerusalem. And you know that throughout the first three chapters, two and a half chapters of Mark's gospel, we have seen Jesus encountering scribes and Pharisees and people that were dispersed throughout the land. But now it was time for a delegation from the capital to come out and shut this thing down. They were going to go show those poor stupid hicks up north what was happening, who this Jesus really was. And this wasn't a fact-finding mission. They had already made up their minds. They knew who Jesus was, and they were going to confront him right here. And so it says here that the scribes came down from Jerusalem. Remember now, it's always down from Jerusalem, even if you're headed north, because Jerusalem truly is a city on a hill, 800 meters above sea level. So it's always down, even if you're headed north. And so they're coming down. And then Matthew tells us that yet another possessed man has been brought to Jesus. This poor guy is, he is blind, and he's dumb. He, he can't see, and he can't speak. And so then, as Jesus often does, he heals the man completely, totally, instantaneously. He heals him. The man can see. The man can speak. He's performed yet another wonderful miracle right before these guys. And they can't pretend like it didn't just happen. He was doing these things in public. And he was doing these things with people that had real families and real friends and people that knew that they had been sick or possessed or oppressed for years. And so they couldn't pretend like these miracles weren't happening. They couldn't just write them off as some kind, of, some kind of showy something. They had to address the fact that, yes, in fact, Jesus was doing the impossible. Jesus was acting in supernatural ways. The authority that he possessed and the power that he, he demonstrated for them it was just far too obvious for everybody else. And so instead of recognizing him as the son of God, they came to this conclusion. He is possessed by Beelzebub and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. Rather than denying his supernatural powers... They accredited them to demons. So you see the name here, Beelzebul. Some of your translations, like a New King James translation, some of those, they'll have Beelzebub there. Beelzebul is a Canaanite god. The name means Lord of the house or Lord of the temple. But when you take the L and you change it to a B, it's a way of mocking him because that means Lord of the flies or Lord of the poop. I taught that to my girls this week. We need not fear Satan, the Lord of the poop. And nowhere in Scripture, though, do we see a a direct tie between Beelzebul, Beelzebub, and Satan. And yet, context here makes it very clear that they're attributing this work to Satan. They're they're claiming that Jesus Christ is possessed. But this charge doesn't even make sense. Like, like you don't have to be some great philosopher. You don't have to be some some grand debater in order to show why this, this argument is just ridiculous. And so Jesus sets them straight. Verse 23 And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if a Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is coming to an end. How how would Satan cast himself out? These demons were following after Satan. They were one with Satan. Their kingdom was the same. They had followed him in his rebellion against God. He had been cast down to earth along with him. Truly, he was their prince. He was their God. What sense then would it make for Satan to cast out his own demons, for Satan to cast out himself? Remembering that Satan's war that he waged, Satan's goal and all that he did was to kill, steal, and destroy, to capture souls, to undo the kingdom of God, to delay his coming, and to do it all in secret. He wanted to blend in. He didn't want to be exposed. That's why we see this reaction from the demons as they come into contact with Jesus. So what sense would it make for Satan to expose his own demons? It it just doesn't make any sense. This is a house divided. This is a civil war. This is a kingdom that cannot stand. Satan is evil, but he's not stupid. And so this argument that these men are coming, it makes absolutely no sense. Matthew tells us that Jesus goes on to make it even more clear. You'll remember that at Jesus' baptism, we see this This picture of the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove coming to rest upon Jesus. And we talked then a great deal about the fact that everything that Jesus would do in his ministry, he would do through the power of the Holy Spirit in his humanity. He needed the fullness of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit beyond measure, to do all these things that he's doing. And he tells them, no, it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons. And if that is so, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This isn't the kingdom of Satan turning on the kingdom of Satan. This is the kingdom of God coming and waging war against the kingdom of darkness, capturing back this place. The true king has come. He's undoing everything that this kingdom of darkness sets out to do, physical, spiritual, the rescuing of souls from him. And make no mistake, the Lord of flies is no match for the Lord of the universe. No chance that he could stand. And so Jesus says, verse 27, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. You can't just walk into a strong man's house and just take his stuff. He's going to whoop you or he's going to kill you or he's going to do something there unless you're a stronger man. The strong man will resist unless the stronger man comes and binds him. Obviously pointing our hearts forward to the end of days when the dragon, the serpent, We'll be chained and cast down into the lake of fire and sulfur. We'll be punished forever and ever and ever. He's saying the strong man is here, and he is coming. He is winning back souls. And then Jesus issues a warning. This warning that has haunted the hearts and minds of believers for 2,000 years. Verse 28, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And so before I take one more step, I want to be extremely careful, just supremely sensitive, knowing that there are most assuredly some of you that feel great anxiety and fear with, with the reading of these words right here. There is nothing more terrifying in all the world than for the God of the universe to say, I will never forgive you. Nothing. It strikes fear in the hearts of men. And so too many pastors, though, they get, they get cocky. They almost get flippant whenever they come to these texts because they've studied them. They think, they, they think that they've come to their own conclusion about what this text means. And look, I spent like 30 hours wrestling with this text. And so no, it doesn't cause me anxiety. In fact, I know that for the child of God, there's a message of incredible hope within this. But I know that many of you haven't spent that same kind of time. So as a result, pastors, they'll come out and they'll, they'll get cute. They'll try to dance around. They'll allow you to sit there and squirm for 15 or 20 minutes, genuinely terrified for the eternity of yourself or somebody that you love. Just waiting for him to give you the answer what what is the answer have i done this thing the church you see pastors we've been called to be loving shepherds our first job is to minister to your souls it's not to wow you with our wisdom and the great number of words that we can speak before you and so it, it, it reminds me the situation it reminds me of when we went to the hospital to have our first little girl annie i was i, I was thinking about that rusty as you're up there you're up there baptizing in that relationship. And I remember I was young, 20, I guess we were, I was 23, something like that. And, and Annie's, Annie's born, my oldest. And I'd go down to the nursery to look through the glass. You know, you could go look through the glass at your, at your babies. And I'd go down there, and the doctor had come in, and he was being, he was being rough with, with these newborn babies. I mean, he wasn't like hitting them or, or, or anything outright abusive, but just a whole lot rougher with a less than one day old baby than I would have preferred. And so I caught him as he was coming back down the hall to, to go down and give a report to my wife. And I said, hey, man, you're, you're, you're being awfully, awfully rough with those newborn babies down there. And he said, yeah, you know, man, new parents, they just don't understand. You don't have to be as delicate with these babies as you think they're not made of glass. Clearly he was trying to make a point to me. And I said, dude, you need to listen to me. You may deal with hundreds of babies every month every year but that's my only one and you're gonna figure out a way to be more careful with her next time do you understand he wasn't intimidated probably as soon as I walked away he probably her up but here's the thing I may have dealt with this text dozens of times before this morning but for some of you you may for the very first time in your life be considering the fact that the God of the universe may be looking at you and saying I will never forgive you so I need to be careful I need to be exceedingly gentle and the way that I handle this text. And so I want you to listen to me very, very closely before we take one step further. If you are sitting there in your home or in your seat, and you are filled with fear or perhaps anxiety that you have committed this unforgivable sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, then you almost assuredly have not. That fear in and of itself gives evidence that you have not committed this sin, The great English commentator, Matthew Henry, says this, those who fear they have committed this sin give a good sign that they have not. The German-American theologian, Louis Burkhoff, we may be reasonably sure that those who fear that they have committed this sin and worry about this, and they desire that other people would pray for them, have not committed it. Do you hear me? Even if you don't understand what the sin is, if you are filled with fear, if you desire people to pray for you, if you are... You understand the danger that would come with committing a sin such as this, you are probably safe. Put your soul at rest. I pray that, that you've, you would unburden your soul so that you can hear the, the message of hope that comes as we walk through the rest of this text and hear Jesus calling out to us in this. And I, and I believe that it'll become clear to you why I can give you that assurance. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Truly I say to you. That word translated in Greek, it's amen. It's the Greek word amen that becomes American, the English word amen. Amen. It's a strong affirmation of what somebody else says. Prior to Christ, it was almost exclusively used to give affirmation to what somebody else said. Not unlike what we do in churches today. The preacher says something that the people affirm, that they agree with, and the people say, amen. But Jesus doesn't preach like other preachers. He doesn't wait for the affirmations of men. He is one with his own authority. He declares what he says to be true because he himself is true, and he doesn't even wait till the end of the sentence. Amen, I say to you, whether you receive it or not. Amen, I say to you. It's almost like calling your shot. What I'm about to say is going to be true. Because I am truth. And he says here, amen. 62 times he does this. Amen, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Talking about unforgiveness here, and, and, it's, and it, this, this kind of brings us to a, just, a, just a wall because Jesus has come and he's extending forgiveness. He's preaching forgiveness. You remember that back in the first chapter of Mark, we kind of summed up, Mark summed up for us, Jesus' ministry. Mark 1.15, he was proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You remember that way back then, I put in your bulletin some 22 times when either repentance or belief is used in conjunction with forgiveness and salvation. It wasn't an exhaustive list, but it was meant to show you that believing repentance, penitent faith, that those are the things that were guaranteed to bring forgiveness. We see that theme running through the entirety of Scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Call on the name of the Lord. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Repent, therefore, and turn to God that your sins might be blotted out. You don't hear any exceptions there. You don't hear, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved unless you did this one thing. Turn right now and repent that God may blot out your transgressions unless you did this one. And so I've got to come to the conclusion that whatever this unforgivable sin is, it must be mutually exclusive from repentant faith. There must be something inherent in this unforgivable sin that makes a man's turning And trusting and repenting impossible. Because God doesn't play games. He doesn't hold something out that's unattainable and promise it to man that would come to him. So clearly there must be something, some dividing wall, which is generated as a result of this unforgivable sin that he calls blaspheming the Holy Spirit. There must be something there that brings a man to a point where he is not able to turn. He is not able to repent. He is not able to believe. So what is it? What is this unforgivable sin that makes repentance impossible? There's a number of pastors that believe that it it is merely persisting in sin, persisting in unbelief until death. And certainly that's true. If you die in your sin, if you die in separation from Jesus Christ, you will not be saved and you will not be forgiven. You'll find awaiting you in the next life nothing but punishment. But really, isn't that just an inverted way, a negative way of saying the gospel? Repent. Believe in Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Therefore, don't repent, don't believe in Jesus Christ, and you won't be saved. But Jesus' language here seems to point to something more specific than that, more exact than that, that more than just persisting in unbelief, although certainly that will lead to damnation and eternal punishment. But he seems to be talking about something, something more specific here. Firstly, because he's delineated this one sin from all the rest of the other sins. Whatever sins you commit, whatever blasphemies you commit, will be forgiven, yet not this one. If, if the issue here was merely unbelief, a general yet persistent unbelief all the way into the point of death, he wouldn't say that these others would be forgiven and yet not this one. I don't believe that he would have divided these into, into segments like this. But secondly, and I think maybe more importantly, he says here, Matthew, in his, in his parallel account, he says this, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. That phrase, in this age or in the age to come. If what we're talking about here is just persisting until the end of this life and stepping off into the next age, into unforgiveness, I don't believe he would have also talked about unforgiveness in this age. He seems to be talking about a thing, about a point, about something that you could do that would make repentance and belief impossible. And from that point, you are unforgiven. Were you unforgiven before? Of course, yes. Until a man repents and believes, confesses Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, there is no forgiveness. But he's talking about in this age. He's not just talking about in the next. And so he seems to be talking about coming to some point of no return. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit has forgiveness. whoever blasphemes against the holy spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin so blasphemy what is what is blasphemy blasphemy is it's a reverent talk it's it's scandalous talk it's it's slander and speaking untruth about god it's the opposite of worship it's the opposite of giving god the glory that he's due it's the opposite of speaking truth whether in worship whether in thought whether in casual conversation about who god is and and it can take all different kinds of forms. It, it can take outright... you remember that the Pharisees and the scribes, they'd accuse Jesus of blasphemy but because he was declaring himself to be God. Certainly that would be a very egregious case of blasphemy were it not true. But it can be much more seemingly innocuous, like in a moment of exasperation or excitement, declaring, oh my God. Or, or it can be using the Lord's name to damn someone or to damn something it's just speaking untruth it's speaking irreverently that's what it means to to blaspheme god and what he's saying here is that these things these words which attempt to desecrate the holiness of god they will be forgiven to speak that way about god to speak that way about jesus christ to speak that way about man that combined with all the other sins in jesus christ repentance and faith you will be forgiven and we've all been guilty of it at some point not a one of us Because those words come from a heart, a heart of distrust, a heart of disbelief, a heart of pride, a heart of anger, a heart of whatever, drives those words to come out of our mouth. And even if we do bridle our tongue, we still have the thoughts, we still have have the heart. And yet he says here, whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. So is that the sum of it? I can speak against Jesus, I can speak against the Father, but if I just let a word slip about the Holy Spirit, or if I allow an unholy thought about the Holy Spirit, or untrue thoughts, about the Holy Spirit to rise up in my heart, that's it, I'm done? Let's, let's think about what he was dealing with here with these scribes. What have they done? What have they done which put them in, in such danger of encroaching upon this unforgivable sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit? And I make that point because I don't see Jesus saying here, you've committed this sin. They may have. The scribes may have. Or some of them would in the future. Certainly more than a fair share of them, we're going to walk off into eternity of unforgiveness for one reason or another, but I don't find him explicitly saying that these men are guilty of this sin. And we've got to be extremely careful. Only God knows. We don't get to run around declaring who has committed this unforgivable sin. It's not a tuss. It's God who knows the heart. And so we, 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 we trust this as a warning here for these guys. And what did he say? Remember at the end of this text, he said, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Again, this is in that that imperfect tense. This is an ongoing thing. This wasn't just a momentary lapse. This wasn't just an angry outburst. This was an ongoing statement. He has an unclean spirit. These were learned men. These were men that knew the law. They knew the word of God. They knew the promises through the prophets. They had participated in temple worship. They had participated in teaching in the synagogues. They knew all the signs that pointed forward to the promised Messiah, and then they had witnessed him in person. They had seen the power of his his words. They had seen the authority in his healing. They had seen all this work of the Holy Spirit in this man to make clear he is the promised one. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. Contrast that with Jesus' family that declared him to be crazy. They came from a point of ignorance. Remember, Jesus hadn't performed these miracles in Nazareth. They hadn't seen all these same things. They weren't as learned as these men. They hadn't witnessed all the same things. And so when they declare him as crazy, they do it from a place of ignorance. These men weren't ignorant. These men had seen what they had seen. They knew what they knew, and they declared, he has an unclean spirit. He's not driven by the spirit of God. He's driven by the spirit of Satan. So much so that they tie themselves up in knots, giving this sorry argument for how he's doing the things that he's doing. They're denying his holiness and calling him to be the most evil of all, that he's being driven by Beelzebub. That is what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. To come to an awareness, an intellectual knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. Not to be ignorant, not to have never heard, not even to have doubts, but to come to an intellectual knowledge of who Jesus Christ is, to come into contact with the working of the Holy Spirit, to see his power, to see his attestation, to see his work. To come under the conviction, the knowledge, the understanding of these things, and at the end of it to declare he is evil. That is the work of Satan, not the work of God. To willfully reject and slander the Holy Spirit's, I can't get up with another word, attestation. That he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God. And again, this is a, this is a monumental difference between these guys and those that are acting out of ignorance, like his family. Or even like a man like Nicodemus, that needed to know more, wanted to know more. A man like John the Baptist, hey, are you really the one? He had seen the same things. And yet in his heart, he said, I need to know more. I need more evidence. I need more something to show me. These scribes and Pharisees, they knew. They knew and they rejected. So there's a number of people that say that, well, because of this, they, they, they agree with me that this is a thing that you do which, which renders you completely incapable of, of repentance and belief. But they, they would say, yeah, but it's, it's only a thing that could have happened during the life of Jesus. It's only a thing that these scribes could have done. It's not something that man could, today could do because you would have had to have witnessed Jesus face to face. You would have had to see. This was a special time, right? The Holy Spirit was working in very particular ways during this special time. That's why we don't look for all the same signs and miracles and things today that we look for in, in the Bible. And so the people say, no, that, that's just a specific sin that those people can do. But then you come to the book of Hebrews where Paul or whoever wrote Hebrews talks to the church. He's, he's talking about things during the church age. And there's just a number of passages we could go to here. But, but I believe that in Hebrews 6, we see the, a, a commentary almost on what Jesus is teaching here. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 says this. Once again, we're reading about someone here. God is telling us about someone here. that It is impossible for them to repent. They cannot come to repentance. And what is it about this man? He's been enlightened. He's, he's been given the truth. He's been shown the truth. The truth has been evidenced before his, before his very eyes. And it says that he's tasted. He's tasted the word of God. He's tasted the promise of the heavenly gifts. You know, this, the same word that the author in Hebrews uses there for tasted, it's the same word that we read for Jesus when he tasted the wine mixed with gall at his crucifixion, he didn't receive it, he spit it out. When he saw what it was, he rejected it. This isn't a man who has received and held on to and accepted and believed. This is a man who has tasted something and he's rejected. He says, no, that's not for me. They've shared in the Spirit. They've seen the working of the Holy Spirit. They've been blessed themselves, many of them, by the work of the Holy Spirit. They've come in to the body of the people. They've seen the work of the Holy Spirit and they've heard the Word of God and they've been enlightened. And at the end of all of it, they declare... He's evil. He's not for me. It says here that's to crucify Jesus Christ again. It's to put him on trial. You come into this place and you put Jesus Christ on trial. Let me see who this Jesus is. Let me see what he has done. Let me see the power of his spirit at work. And then I will decide for myself whether or not he's worthy of following. Whether or not he's truly the son of God. Whether or not forgiveness is really found in him. To put him on trial. To hold him in contempt. This isn't this isn't backsliding of a believer, right? This isn't just a believer coming to Christ and then falling back into their own patterns of sin because God promises that, that there is blessing and forgiveness that can be found there. Look at the prodigal son. You can wander away and then, and then come back. And, and this, isn't, this isn't the loss of salvation in the life of a believer because Jesus assures us that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved and that it is in his hands that we are secure, that he holds tightly to us all the way until the end that we will not break free and that no one will snatch us from his hand, and so it's, it's it's not that this is true apostasy. These are men and women, many of whom would claim themselves to be part of the church, part of the body. Then, after tasting and being enlightened and sharing, they declare, "Now, he's not for me. He's evil." Now, the scribes and the Pharisees they weren't apostatizing; they had never declared themselves. But it's the same spirit, spirit that sees the work, that comes with the knowledge and the understanding, and then walks away. That is the person that is unable to be brought to repentance. Because think about it. How does God bring about repentance? How does He bring about faith and repentance? It's by the illumination of the Holy Spirit. It's by bringing men and women to an understanding of who Jesus is and a conviction that that's who He is, a conviction that the gospel is true. How then would this person be reached? Either the person that Jesus is warning about there with the scribes or the man in Hebrews 6? It's not that he doesn't know the gospel not that he hasn't heard the gospel. And so bringing them to the knowledge of the truth, persuasion of the truth, that won't work because they already know the truth. It's not that they haven't seen the working of the Holy Spirit. And so you can't, the Holy Spirit is not going to work these signs before them these, that show his power before them, demonstrate his power in their life. They've already seen it. They've already tasted it. They've inoculated themselves to the Holy Spirit. They've hardened themselves to the point that the Holy Spirit will withdraw from them completely and leave them there by the work of the Holy Spirit that you are brought to repentance and to faith. And they have so hardened themselves that the Holy Spirit will pull back and they will find no forgiveness in this age or in the age to come. This also isn't the same thing as quenching or resisting of the Holy Spirit. We see, we, we see throughout the letters warnings against that, but then encouragements to turn back. We, we see it in Ephesians 4, Acts 7, 1 Thessalonians 5. Times when it talks about ways in which we could grieve or we could offend or we could resist. We could quench the work of the Holy Spirit and how we're then called to, to return, to turn back, that forgiveness and blessing can be found there. Again, this is to come into full contact, understanding, knowledge, sharing the power, and say that is evil. It is not for me. We go back to Louis Burkhoff. He says it better than I can. One of his books on systematic theology. says this. This sin consists in the conscious, malicious, and willful rejection and slander against evidence and conviction of the testimony of the Holy Spirit respecting the grace of God in Christ, attributing it out of hatred and enmity toward the prince of darkness. In committing that sin, man willfully, maliciously, and intentionally attributes what is clearly recognized as the work of God to the influence and operation of Satan." This sin consists not in doubting the truth, not in a sinful denial of the truth, but in contradiction of it that goes contrary to the conviction of the mind, to the illumination of the conscience, and to even the verdict of the heart. This is to see and believe and yet still walk away. This isn't to have doubts. This isn't to sinfully resist at a point. This is to come to an understanding and an awareness where your heart cries out and says, This is real. He is the king. Your mind knows there is no other way from salva- to salvation apart from him. And you go, no, nah, no, nah, not for me. What a horrible place to be in. Listen, I felt those times of turmoil in my life when my heart knew what was right to do, and I just wouldn't do it. Like a little boy just destroying his toys just to get even with who knows who that's the picture of the man that he's he's talking about here What a horrendous place to be and the sad part is you won't even care because you've declared god's spirit to be evil you declared that way to not be righteous and just and so you don't even care about the fact that you've offended him you don't even care about the fact that you don't have forgiveness in this moment that's why i said earlier if you have fear in your heart if you want god's forgiveness you would ask people to pray for you about this that's great evidence that you haven't done this now sure The person that's committed this sin, there will be sorrow over the repercussions. There will be a sadness. There may even be a longing for blessing. I believe that's what we see in Hebrews 12 when he talks about Esau. It says that through tears, Esau sought repentance and yet could not find a place. Could not find repentance. It doesn't say that Esau repented and could not find forgiveness. It doesn't say that Esau repented, turned to Christ, but that God stiff-armed him. It says that he couldn't find repentance. He wanted something, and yet he had so hardened himself to the work of the Holy Spirit that it withdrew from him completely. He would not be brought to repentance. He would find no such place. I I pray that you see this. I pray that this encourages you, so that if you're squirming there in your seat, if you've had those doubts for yourself, have I committed this sin? Have I blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Am I unforgivable? You most assuredly are not. That that voice within you that's that's crying out, that fear within you, that may be the very calling of the Holy Spirit calling you. Maybe for the first time, calling you to repent and believe in Jesus Christ and be forgiven. I I think about back in my sporting days, I'd have coaches that, a number of coaches told me this over the years. They said, look, it's not when I'm yelling at you that you need to be worried. If I'm yelling at you, that means there's still some chance that you're going to get better. It's when I give up and assume you're going to be a slappy for the rest of your life and just don't bother yelling at all. That's when you need to be worried. But if you can still feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you can still feel him calling you to repentance, that at that point you know that he's calling you, and that for those of you that are his, those of you that already have come to faith in repentance, maybe this is part of the way that he holds on to you. He's promised he won't lose you. promise that you've been sealed up with the Holy Spirit, just as Satan wouldn't attack his demons within a man, the Holy Spirit will not drive himself out from you. Once you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, you've received that gift. You are secure for all eternity. He's going to make certain that you do not commit this particular sin. You're secure, you're safe. So of all the things to worry about in the world, and there's plenty, this is not one for the child of God. This should be an incredibly hopeful message for you. Sure, there's a terrifying warning here for those people that are playing church. Those people that have just kind of come into the orbit of the church, and they've been around and know enough. They, they know and they believe. Again, this isn't just, I can recite the gospel. This is when your mind convicts you of the truth of the gospel. You know it. It keeps you up at night. You know Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and he is the way. And you feel the conviction of your sin in your heart. You know I'm a sinner, and apart from Jesus Christ, there is no salvation. I've got to turn to him because I can't fix this thing on my own. And then you come to the end of that and you go, no, that's not for me. I don't want it. I know it's true. I believe there's no other way. But I declare his way to be evil and I reject it completely. There's, there's incredible fear that should come there. There's a great danger of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And if that's where you're at this morning, then I plead with you. Scripture tells us, if you hear the Lord's voice, if you hear the, hear the voice of the Holy Spirit, if you hear his calling... Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. You'll know when that day comes. So today's the day. Call on the name of the Lord and be saved. It's not too late. Call on the name of the Lord and be saved. But if you were a child of God, if you were His, would you meditate on these words in verse 28? Find the hope and the peace that is here. Truly, amen, I say to you, All sins will be forgiven of the children of man. Unalterably, irrevocably, promised from the king of the universe, all sins will be forgiven. How many times have people come to me and they said, I think I've done too much. I am too far gone. If you knew the things that I have done, there is no way that God could forgive me. There is no way that I could have a place in the kingdom of God. I've resisted for too long. I've run for too long. I've gone too deep in my sin. You have no idea, and there is no way. And he's saying, yes, I do know. And i paid the price, and forgiveness is offered, just like forgiveness for adultery and murder, murder was offered to a man like King David. Just like forgiveness for pride was offered to James and John. Just like forgiveness for doubt was offered to Thomas. Just like forgiveness for turning and running like a coward and denying Jesus Christ himself like the Apostle Peter. Just like chasing down, persecuting, and killing Christians like the Apostle Paul. Yes, friend, I think there is forgiveness for you. If you would turn, repent, and believe in Jesus Christ. He says, you will be forgiven. There is nothing more terrifying in all the world than to hear the God of the universe look at you and say, I will never forgive you. But there is nothing that will put more joy in your heart, more assurance in your walk, more hope in your heart, than to have that very same God look at you and say, you are forgiven forever. In this age and in the next. Because of my work and my son, Jesus Christ, his atoning death, his powerful resurrection, if you would place your hope and faith in him, you are forgiven. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. Father, we uh, we thank you for the promise of complete and total forgiveness that not, not only do you declare us forgiven, but you declare us blessed because of the perfect righteousness of your son Jesus Christ imputed to our account. You don't just look at us and find us as neutral, as in between, as in the middle, but you call us sons, you call us daughters, and that you are transforming us from glory to glory and a life of eternal blessing with you. Father, we praise you for that. Father, we also confess the the weakness of our minds. Father, I I would be a foolish man if I stood in this pulpit today and believed that I've, this is a tough text. These are tough words. So Father, I pray that when we come to these texts, these these difficult passages, where there certainly is not universal agreement amongst all believers, that we we would find unity in the things which can be known, And Father, I think we can all without reservation agree no matter what this sin is, this unforgivable sin is, that there is no forgiveness of any sin apart from your Son, Jesus Christ. Repentant faith turning in true penitence handing our sin to Him and receiving His righteousness. And so that's my desire this morning, Father. If there's any here this morning, any joining with us online that have not taken that step. They are continuing to resist. Father, while there is still time, when they hear the voice of your Spirit, may they no longer resist. May they no longer harden their heart. May they come running into the arms of their precious, powerful, holy Father. Father, it's in the name of your precious Son we pray. Amen.